0: Women choose their jobs for different reasons than men do. When they're on the job, they assess their working conditions in different ways. That's according to research into the ever-increasing diversity of America's labor force. It's the recent finding of Melanie Wasserman at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. I'm Warren Alney, and this is How the World Works. (music) Professor Wasserman, Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: What differences between men and women have you found when it comes to choosing a job?
1: you know the first thing that i want to do is i want to kind of motivate why we should care about you know why men and women select into different occupations or choose different jobs some very recent research suggests that about 40 to 50 percent of the gender pay gap can be explained by differences in the occupational choices of men and women so i think this sets the stage for kind of turning our attention to understanding kind of the nature and determinants of these differences and so Part of my research, what I do is I turn my attention to kind of one particular hypothesis, which is, do men and women differentially value the non-monetary aspects of jobs or occupations. And non-monetary aspects can be things like the time intensity of a job or an occupation, the extent to which it exposes someone to physical risk, or the extent to which the occupation has a, something like a competitive culture. And I'm able to kind of directly test whether men and women differentially value the time intensity, especially during the early years of an occupation. And what I find is that there are substantial gender differences. I'm able to investigate this with um, use of what kind of economists call a natural experiment. And so I turn my attention to one large occupation, physicians. And what's really interesting about physicians, if you you are one or if you know one, they have an early career period that is very time intensive, known as medical residency. And there's something even more interesting about medical residency, which is that it's time intensity, that is the number of hours that medical residents are required to work per week, the predictability of those hours, the continuity of those hours, varies quite a lot by the specialty that a resident chooses and so back in 2003 the medical profession in the u.s decided to regulate these hours and in particular there was a national conversation going on at the time in the u.s regarding how excessive medical resident hours could contribute to medical errors and could potentially compromise patient safety. And so what the medical profession did is they decided to cap the average number of hours per week that medical residents could work. And they capped it at 80, which might still seem very excessive, but believe it or not, this was a substantial improvement for a subset of medical specialties. So in particular, those specialties like the surgical specialties had hours far in excess during residency of 80 hours per week and those specialties were required to reduce their hours in order to come into compliance with this new reform. Now, I don't mean to say that all medical specialties were in perfect compliance with this reform, but there is empirical evidence that there was a substantial reduction in the hours of these specialties that had hours far in excess of 80 prior to the reform. Now, how does this link to gender differences and occupational choices? What I'm able to do is I'm able to use this policy and the fact that certain medical specialties had to reduce their time intensity during their early years in order to examine how physicians change their medical specialty choices in response to the reduction in hours. And what I find is that female physicians are substantially more likely to go into those medical specialties that had to reduce their hours in order to come into compliance with the reform after the reform went into place. However, male physicians basically are unresponsive in their specialty choices to changes in the time intensity of medical specialties.
0: Let me ask you this when they reduced the hours for the uh, interns, did it in fact have an impact on patient care?
1: There has been a lot of literature to emerge primarily from the medical community on precisely that. And you're absolutely right that the initial impetus for this reform was concerns regarding patient care, patient safety. In the aftermath of the reform, the evidence actually shows, I would say, pretty small effects. So there are you know, potentially offsetting effects here. So on one hand, medical residents could be less fatigued and therefore provide superior patient care. On the other hand, some critics of the reform said that by reducing the hours of medical residents. They're actually receiving less training, and then they're also chopping up the shifts of medical residents into smaller units, which has implications for the continuity of patient care. And so these are potentially offsetting effects in terms of patient outcomes. And I would say the empirical evidence suggests, if anything, there are very small effects on patient mortality and patient morbidity associated with this reform.
0: This gets very complicated, but with regard to the reduction in hours, uh, you say they jiggle schedules around, but did they actually have to have more interns in order to accomplish the same amount of work if they weren't working as long?
1: The number of medical residents that a hospital can hire is actually not up exactly to them because medical residency is funded by the federal government. And so what hospitals did in order to make up for the hours deficit is they hired more medical paraprofessionals, things like individuals like nurse practitioners, and then also more kind of fully trained physicians, that is physicians who had already completed their medical residency. And so this was by no means a you know costless reform from the perspective of the hospitals they did have to kind of make up this hours deficit by hiring more personnel.
0: So sort of a jobs creator.
1: Um, yeah, that's one, I would say, uh, interesting interpretation. Yes.
0: So on to the question of the differences between the males and the females. And you say females are more likely to go into the areas of specialty uh, where the hours and the intensity have been reduced, whereas males, you say, are unresponsive to that. How do you explain it?
1: That's a really great question. And so one hypothesis for, you know, why women might be more responsive to these early career hours requirements relative to men is that they could be anticipating, you know, taking on a disproportionate share of childcare or child-rearing duties, and they might, you know, forecast or determine that these extremely high-hour specialties might conflict with, you know, other life objectives, such as, you know, family formation, having kids. You know, in my paper, I am able to, you know, shed some light on this hypothesis. And so what I do is I'm actually able to, in two states, observe the fertility choices of female physicians across specialties before and after this reform. I find that when a specialty reduces its hours, women in that specialty actually experience an increase in the number of children that they have during the residency period. And so this suggests that you know these hours actually might serve as a constraint on the decision to have a child during this kind of early career, very time-intensive period.
0: Well, this has some very interesting implications, it seems to me, in terms of the relations between men and women in general, in a broader sense. And we think that women are becoming in many ways more equal to men than they have been in the past. But this would suggest that women are still, at least among the medical profession, more likely to be the ones that are involved in raising the family, taking care of the kids.
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. And so there's actually some, you know, nice work that looks at um, time use among, you know, high achieving physicians and finds that there are substantial gender disparities in time use. So women on average spend about eight hours more per week engaged in you know, childcare and domestic duties relative to their professional male counterparts. One explanation for this is the role of the spouse. So female physicians are more likely to be married to someone who is also working full-time, whereas male physicians are more likely to be married to someone or partnered with someone who is working part-time or is not working at all.
0: Are women more likely than men in these situations to give up salary in order to achieve the goal of not having to work under such intense circumstances?
1: My paper shows when the time intensity of a medical specialty is reduced, more women go into that specialty. And these specialties that are the most time intensive also tend to be the most highly compensated. And so this would suggest that prior to this reform, women may have been giving up some compensation, some salary in order to you know, sort into a specialty or select into a specialty that had lower time intensity, at least during the early period. There's also work from you know, other researchers that shows in a more direct sense, college students, when they are asked about their preferences for various job attributes, we see that female students are willing to actually give up part of their wage compensation in order to gain access to a job that has the availability of part-time work, whereas we don't see this kind of similar trade-off happening among male students.
0: Where do the students get the information about how their different professional choices might work out?
1: So that's a really interesting question. So, you know, in the context of that particular survey, this was a job that was presented to them with a series of attributes, but I actually have a very kind of new set of results, a new paper that investigates whether there are gender differences in access to information regarding various careers. So what we do is we conduct a large field experiment, in which we ask college students to send messages to working professionals on a large professional networking platform. And what we do is we ask these students to send messages that inquire regarding basic career information in the professional's field. And the way that we isolate whether you know, student gender affects the information that students receive is we randomize whether a professional receives a message from a male student or a female student. And what we find is something that's really interesting. Things like, you know, can you tell me about the pros and cons of working in your field? We focus on four fields, so finance, data science, management consulting, and law. And what we find is that professionals really do differentiate the information that they provide based on the gender of the student who is asking for that information. And in particular, what we find is that when students ask kind of broadly about the pros and cons of a professional's career path, professionals are substantially more likely to give information on work-life balance issues to female students relative to male students. And so this is really interesting that, you know, professionals actually differentially emphasize certain career attributes to female students. And you know one thing that we find is that we you know we ask students their likelihood of going into their preferred career path relative to the start of a study. What we find is that female students who participated in our study are more dissuaded from their preferred career path relative to male students. Part of this kind of gender gap in deterrence is that Professionals place a greater emphasis on work-life balance issues in their responses to female students. And so when professionals talk about work-life balance, they generally talk about it in a negative sense, like there are grueling hours in law. The predictability of hours is a major issue in finance. And so this isn't kind of neutral information that's being provided. It really does take on kind of a negative tone, which explains why individuals might be deterred from a career path upon hearing that information.
0: So it seems to me if you get one of these
1: requests,
0: uh, what you're suggesting is you better be very careful about how you answer.
1: I think it definitely gives one pause as to how one should answer. You know, so one possibility is that we think that information should be tailored to the interests of the individual who is kind of seeking information. You know, these professionals might think that women on average care more about work-life balance relative to men, and then they kind of give out this information on work-life balance accordingly. And from our perspective, if information is being doled out based on the individual's interests, this actually seems like a good thing. You know, if you're interested in work-life balance and you're getting information on work-life balance, then this would seem to imply that individuals are getting the information that they are seeking. One thing that we do is we have students send professionals another question type, which asks specifically about whether work-life balance is a concern in the professional's career path. So this is supposed to shut down this particular explanation that, you know, women and men just have different interests. They care about different, career attributes and professionals are just giving out information accordingly. What we find is that even when students say, hey, I am interested in work-life balance, can you give me information on work-life balance? Professionals are still more willing to engage with female students relative to male students. And so professionals are much more responsive to these questions when they're posed by a female student than when they're posed by a male student. And so this suggests to us that if probably isn't just that professionals are tailoring information to students' interests. There is kind of something else going on in terms of professionals determining that this information might be more important for female students relative to male students.
0: Is there a difference between whether the professional is a man or a woman?
1: Kind of. Um, and so on some dimensions, yes. So we find that female professionals are more likely to give out This work-life balance information, when students ask kind of broadly about the pros and cons of a professional's career, they're more likely to give it out to female students relative to male students. But then when we look at the responsiveness when students specifically bring up work-life balance, male and female professionals look kind of very similar in the extent to which they differentiate their responses based on student gender.
0: You've also done research, as I understand it, into socioeconomic factors and boy-girl divisions. When it comes to success in the classroom, what have you found out there in, in terms of what difference it makes to boys as opposed to girls in terms of what kind of background they have?
1: Thus far, we've really been talking about how women have gender disparities that favor men, but there are also some really notable gender disparities that favor women. So in the US and throughout many countries in the developed world and increasingly developing countries as well, women are outpacing men in terms of educational attainment. And you see this in terms of high school graduation, you see this in terms of college attendance and also college graduation. And so what we do in this particular line of research is we try to understand why these kind of gender gaps that favor women might exist and you know, whether they could have some roots in individuals' childhood. We look specifically at family socioeconomic status and we investigate whether family socioeconomic status might have different implications for boys and girls' educational outcomes, but during childhood, so like during grade school. And so we start very young. What we find is that children on average who grow up in a more disadvantaged family setting do lag behind children who grow up in more advantaged settings. But then we take it a step further and we see whether this notion of family disadvantage could have different implications for boys and girls. And what we see is that boys and girls actually look pretty similar in terms of their educational outcomes. So when you look at things like standardized test scores, so like high school graduation, but then as you move down the distribution, so among kind of the more disadvantaged families, this is where the gulf between boys and girls really opens up and where we see that girls are outpacing boys in terms of standardized test scores and especially in terms of behavioral outcomes, such as absences from school and suspensions. This really carries over to high school graduation, which is kind of the last educational outcome that we're able to observe in our data set. And so you see that among more advantaged families, boys and girls look pretty similar in terms of high school graduation. But then among kind of the most disadvantaged, this is where you really see women tend to, you know, outpace men in terms of this educational outcome.
0: You use some interesting markers in order to figure out uh, what's going on, including uh, zip codes.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, I really have to credit my co-author, David Figlio, for putting together this amazing data set alongside Jeffrey Roth. The reason we were able to have such granular, detailed information on children, essentially tracking them from birth through high school graduation, uh, is due to this administrative data from the state of Florida, which actually links birth certificates to public schooling records and so we do observe a child at birth all the way through you know when they exit the florida public schooling system you know to your point about zip codes, so in our paper we really focus on the extent to which family environment may contribute to these differential outcomes for boys and girls in education, also are some alternative hypotheses. So one might think that you know, your family socioeconomic status is likely going to determine the types of neighborhoods that you can live in, the types of places that one can afford to live. In addition, uh, you know, family environment might determine the types of schools. That children have access to, you know, through these kind of school catchment areas, which are often determined by neighborhoods. What we do is we, you know, test whether these alternative hypotheses can, you know, potentially explain our results, you know, that show that family environment does affect boys and girls. And we find that using zip code data, which is going to be a proxy for neighborhood, we find that I would say neighborhood attributes and school quality can explain, you know, some of this contribution of family environment to separate outcomes of boys and girls, but certainly not all of it. So there is this kind of independent role for family in addition to neighborhood characteristics and school characteristics.
0: So what do you conclude, generally speaking, about the gender differences that exist in our country in particular? And are we making progress toward equality or not?
1: One thing that I want to point out is that there was a lot of progress throughout the 1980s and into the early 1990s in terms of narrowing the gender wage gap. And over the last 25 years, what we've seen is basically a stagnation in that progress, which I think is perhaps cause for concern, but also why are we witnessing this stalled progress? What are the determinants of these remaining gender differences in pay? And I guess for me, one of the things that really drew me to kind of thinking about gender differences and occupational choice was this um pattern that these gender differences in occupational choices seem to kind of explain quite a lot of the kind of remaining gender pay gap i do think that research is really active in terms of uh, trying to kind of unpack exactly why this progress has stalled and what the determinants are of the kind of remaining gender pay gap
0: well, obviously, we're talking about questions that are extraordinarily important, and your insights into them are fascinating to hear about, and congratulations on the research that you have done. Again, Melanie Wasserman, UCLA Anderson, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Warren. I really appreciate it. This has been How the
0: World Works, a podcast at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. I'm Warren Alney. Join us again.